Luke chapter number 13 is our text today. Part two of the sermon series entitled Bold as a Lion. Last week, we talked about part one in Luke chapter number 13, where Jesus presents himself as extremely bold. Now, in this passage, Jesus is inviting us to be bold as well. And the sermon is entitled, Little Things. The sermon is entitled, Little Things. Say it with me, Little Things. And as we get into this passage, we're going to see there are three little things that we ought to be bold with and that ought to push us to boldness. The little things are a little seed, a little leaven, and then a little gate. And all three of these little things show us that we ought push toward boldness ourselves as we follow Jesus Christ in his boldness. We don't do it every week. I should say we don't do it every day. But my family likes to do it every Friday. Every Friday night is a family night that goes into Saturday, which is our Sabbath or our family day, and we just rest and have fun. So every single Friday night, we don't do it every day, but we do it this every Friday night. We like to get good dessert, a good dessert. You know what I mean? Like a good dessert. And so Friday afternoon, I stopped by the store between meetings, and I, and I, and I bought some bluebell ice cream. How many of you ever had bluebell ice cream? Would you raise your hand? God bless Bluebell. It comes from the South. My wife comes from the South. Bluebell ice cream comes from the South. I can't say that I love them equally, but I'm also not allowed to say which I love more. They're both really, really good. How many, honestly, how many of you have never tried Bluebell ice cream before? Would you raise your hand? You've never tried it. Oh my goodness, people. And so I bought some bluebell ice cream and brownies because brownies belong with ice cream and ice cream belong with brownies. It's God ordained. In the garden of Eden, God made male and female and brownies and ice cream. <laughs> they belong together. And so I bought it on Friday night and, um, and I brought it home. And, and sometimes you'll have leftover dessert. You know, we, dessert, we try to do dessert like one time a week to try to keep it, you know, okay. And then, but sometimes you have leftover on Saturday. And then sometimes if it was a big dessert, leftover on Sunday, you know what I mean? And sometimes when you have a three-day weekend on Monday and it's all gone because it's still the weekend, you go and get something for Monday, you know what I mean? And uh, it's, it's not so great, but this is what we do. And Saturday came around and I noticed there were leftover brownies and leftover bluebell ice cream in our freezer and the brownies in the tray. And I'm like, okay, it was afternoon on Saturday afternoon, just chilling as a family. And I said to the girls, my two daughters, 117, 114, I said, "Uh, make sure you leave me one brownie for after dinner because I know them and they will eat it up. if I don't lay claim to my brownie. And nobody cares about dad. How many dads understand this? Nobody cares because they think, you bought the brownies, but you don't eat them. (laughs) And so I, I, I said, save me a brownie, right? The problem is I did not remember to say, save me some ice cream. I know. And so dinner was done and I was over at my computer working on some stuff for the church history class. And all of a sudden I heard them fighting in the kitchen about ice cream and brownies and how much is left over. And immediately, now some of you think I'm a very mature, spiritual God. 
immediately my hands went on the, and I slammed my hands and I stood up and I ran out. I ran to the kitchen. I said, how much is left? How much is left? (laughs) And Savannah and Scarlett were fighting about how much they were dividing because there was just enough for two people. And I said, no, I grabbed one of the kids' bowls. I said, you said you're exaggerating. I'm telling, I'm a bad human. (laughs) And I grabbed one of the bowls and I said, you divide this into three. And then one of the girls went, no. And I went, no. And I'm like, wait a second, I'm a 42-year-old pastor. I could buy it if I wanted. I could just leave and go get ice cream. So I, caught, I said, whatever. I said, fine. Fine. Whenever somebody says fine like that, it's not fine. I fine. And I walked over to the other room and I sat down. I got on my computer and I thought to myself, I should have I should have hit it. I should have gone in there Saturday morning. I was up before everybody else, take some ice cream, take some brownies, put it in a bowl, cover it up, put the frozen pizza on top. You know, some of you dads know exactly what I'm talking about. Because if you don't hide it, you don't get it. But I wasn't, I wasn't brave enough. I wasn't bold enough. I wasn't ahead of it. This is a problem. Have you ever been left out? Because you forgot to pursue in boldness what you were supposed was rightfully yours. It was rightfully mine. I'm really upset. I don't know if you can tell. Okay. That's what this passage is about. It's about claiming that which is yours with boldness, courage, with security and confidence, claiming what you should claim before it's too late. And there are those of us in this room who keep missing out because we lack the boldness to claim that which we already belongs to us. There are some watching online who today find there are losses in their life because they lack the boldness necessary to claim which is what, what is rightfully theirs. And today, we're going to talk about, from the words of Jesus, how we need to be bold. See, the follower of Jesus is bold like Jesus. And Jesus is inviting you into his boldness. What are the characteristics of the bold found in this passage? First, we see characteristic number one, that the bold never despise little beginnings. Number one, the bold never despise little beginnings. Number one, Those who are bold don't look down on small things because everything that is eventually great begins with a little beginning. That's what Jesus says in verse 18 and 19 when Jesus said, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it? Jesus has been teaching uh, from synagogue to synagogue, and this is one of the sermons he would give. And he said, do you want to know what the kingdom of God is like? Do you want to know what it's like, this kingdom of God? Do you want to know what Christianity is like? This is what Christianity is like. It's like a mustard seed, which a farmer took And he put it in his garden and it grew and became a large tree and the birds of the air nested in its branches. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, the smallest of seeds. 
And this is what the kingdom of God is like. When you take that small mustard seed and you place it in the garden and the farmer watches as the bush begins to grow and it grows so large, it turns into a tree and the tree is so massive, many branches are going all over the place and it's such a big tree, even the birds of the air can come and live inside of the tree. That is what Christianity is like. So what does that mean? Well, it's a parable. So Jesus was saying... The kingdom of God may look small to you. You know, one little rabbi, homeless, walking around trying to do carpentry on the side. It may seem like a little small thing, what we're doing here. Jesus is saying of his disciples, but it will one day, Christianity, grow into this massive organism with many branches that span all over the world and people can come and live their lives inside of it. And that's what you see historically what Christianity has become. It started small and grew massive with many branches, many denominations, tens of thousands of churches, millions and millions of people coming out of this one little small seed, the kingdom of God. Small at the beginning, but massive now. Don't despise little things. Bold people don't despise little things. Cynical people do. Realistic people do. Like Nathaniel. See, Nathaniel was a realist. If you ask Nathaniel who he was, he would say, I'm neither optimistic nor pessimistic. I'm a realist. Uh, Nathaniel was the kind of guy who liked to calculate the data and produce spreadsheets. Nathaniel was the kind of person who was a realist. He thought what he thought and he said what was on his mind. That's who Nathaniel was. And so when Nathaniel saw his friends, Peter and James and John and and Andrew, these guys he grew up with, now they're all following this Jewish carpenter, this rabbi who's homeless, that this groupie's uh, following this guy and he does some miracles, sure. But this small little group of people and, 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 and Nathaniel thought to himself, come on. You think he's the Messiah? But it was when his own friend Philip started following Jesus, that's when Nathaniel took note. Because Nathaniel knew that Philip was a wise guy. He was a smart individual. His intellect was high. And he thinks to himself, how in the world is Philip following this guy? And so Nathaniel had to think about it, as Nathaniel does. And he goes out in the middle of his work week, and he sits down underneath a fig tree. And as he's sitting in the fig tree, he's starting to calculate the details. He's thinking through, what is the chance that this guy is actually the Messiah come to save Israel? I love Israel. I want the Messiah to come. I want the king of kings to arrive. But this one, this is the guy? And as he's thinking through these details underneath this fig tree, his friend Philip shows up and says, hey, Nathaniel, Nathaniel. And he looks up and sees his friend coming. He said, hey, man, what's going on? Nathaniel, you've got to come with us. What do you mean? Nathaniel, I know you don't believe, but you've got to hear this. It's Jesus. He is the Messiah. I've studied the prophecies. I know you have. You've got to see this man. He's Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nazareth. Can anything good come from that little place? Can anything good come from Nazareth? 
And Philip looked and said, just come and see. And so Nathaniel said, okay, I'll come and I'll see. And so he did. With all the skepticism and all the cynicism and all the realism in his mind, he followed his friend Philip to meet Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus was standing there, finishing a teaching, perhaps. All the crowd was ready to disperse. And as Nathaniel approached Jesus, Jesus stopped, flicked up his eyes, and saw Nathaniel coming. And he said, Nathaniel, here comes a true Israelite. A man who speaks his mind, a man within his no guile, no manipulation. You don't have to tell anybody what you think because everybody knows it the moment you say it. And Nathaniel looks at him and says, Jesus, how do you, how do you even know me? You don't know me. And Jesus looks at Nathaniel and said, Nathaniel, while you were sitting under the fig tree, I knew you and saw you. And immediately the realist, the skeptic, the cynic fell on his knees before Jesus and all of that was washed away. And he said, behold, you are the king of Israel. Behold, you are the son of God. And Nathaniel became a believer. But what was said next is what's most fascinating to me. Jesus looks down at Nathaniel and says, Nathaniel, do you believe? Because I said, I saw you under a fig tree. And Jesus helps Nathaniel up and says, you're gonna see much greater and bigger things than these. You know, I wonder if Nathaniel would have missed out on everything if his realism and his skepticism and his cynicism and his calculating of the details God in his way. Here's the thing about people like Nathaniel. Because they despise little beginnings, they never see great things. Some of you today need to have some boldness about the little beginnings that you're in the midst of. Some of you right now, you have a small business, maybe not even a business, but you dream of one day a big business. You dream of being able to leave the past behind. But all you have right now is a little dream. And there are gonna be people in your life who push against that on a constant basis. And what you need to understand is that you should never despise little beginnings. It's from little beginnings that grow great things. Some of you, you deeply desire and wish and dream of a large family. And you think to yourself, man, it's what I'd want, but there's only two of us right now. And so you're questioning the dream God has placed in your heart. And I would say, just because there's two of you now, don't despise these little beginnings. Some of you dream of being free from your addiction. I mean, completely done and broken free from that. But the problem is you've only been clean for like five days. You've only been clean for like 14 days. And you're like, there's no way I can do it. It's only been a week I've been clean. And I would say, don't despise the little beginning. It is from the little beginning that grow great things, just as Jesus did in his kingdom. Just as the kingdom of God is. When we started this church, Heather and I, there was nobody, just a few handful of us. And I remember... After about a year of being here, there were a few dozen that came every Sunday, 
and on time change Sunday, they didn't even come, you know what I mean? And they would come every single week and it, the church was growing, but it was growing really slowly. There was a special Wednesday or Sunday, we were invited to go back to our home church, back where we came from for a special Sunday. And I remember we went in there for a special meeting and people were there and they were patting us on the back and praying over us and saying, we believe in you. We're excited about church planting. We believe in this new church plant. But there was this one woman I'll never forget and it's amazing how it just is in my mind. She came over and she patted me on the back and she said very sarcastically and with so much cynicism, it dripped off of her tongue. She said, what is it like preaching to 12 people every Sunday? And what's it like for you to come back to a real church? And, and you, know that, you know that feeling that you get when something like that happens and you're kind of like, you know it's a joke, but man, it, and you're like, that's good. <laughs> Die. You know what I mean? Like you, that's what you wanna, but you don't say it out loud. Man, that hurt deeply. Why? Because in her worldview, she could never see something great coming from such a small place. Neither could Nathaniel, and neither can many people when it comes to Christ. So first and foremost, we see the bold never despise little beginnings. But number two, Jesus' next story shows us the bold always will cut out little sins. The, the first one was all about a little seed representing little beginnings. The second one is all about a little leaven, which represents sin. Look what it says in the next passage. Look what he says in verse 20. He says, to what shall I liken the kingdom of God? So Jesus said, you know what the kingdom of God is like? I'll tell you what it's like. It's like a little seed that grows big. You know what the kingdom of God is like? It's also like leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. Like a baker, he says. A baker takes a, a lump of dough and places a little bit of yeast or a little leaven like the photograph shows. Like the photograph shows. There's the photograph that shows like what we're talking about. And what happens, a baker would know this, uh, what happens is you take that little bit of leaven and you place it in, and as it does, you set it aside, put a towel over it, and slowly it rises, right? The fermenting process takes place. The corruption of what was is creating what needs to be. And suddenly these, uh, this, this yeast or leaven rises the dough. Like, um, like you, you like yeast rolls? Have you ever been to... Texas Roadhouse and tried their, their yeast rolls? Have you ever tried the yeast rolls? How many of you have ever tried those before? Oh my goodness. Oh, it's heaven. People, people when they study the Bible, they'll say, Pastor, here it says they, the children of Israel were fed manna in the wilderness. What is manna? Texas Roadhouse sweet honey rolls. That's what they are. It's true, it's in the Bible somewhere, I'm telling you. And then they bring you those hot rolls and then it has like cinnamon butter and you put the, and you break, have you ever take it like a cup of coffee and break open the roll under your, and you go, and the steam comes up and you, 
That's when you know God is real and he loves us. He loves us all. He loves every one of us. Okay, so this is the yeast rolls and that's what he's talking about. Yet the problem with that analogy is that in Jesus's metaphor, yeast or leaven represents sin. A little bit of sin destroys everything. You say, how do we know that Jesus is talking about yeast or leaven as a bad thing, not a good thing? Well, in the Old Testament, throughout the Passover, they had to get rid of all the leaven, which represented sin. So it's built upon the theology of the Old Testament, but that's not just it. It's also built upon what Jesus said just a chapter before in Luke chapter 12. Remember, we're going verse by verse through Luke. And in Luke chapter 12, do you remember a couple weeks ago? In Luke chapter 12 and verse one, look what it says on the screen. In Luke chapter 12 and verse one on the screen, it'll say on the screen in Luke chapter 12 and verse one, it says, in the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another, look, a verse goes on. It says, another, uh, he began to say to his disciples, first of all, so Jesus had a big crowd, and remember what he said, beware of the What? See it on the screen? Say it with me. He said, Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So just a chapter before, Jesus already gave you exactly what the metaphor means, and that is leaven represents sin. Hypocrisy is a sin. You allow hypocrisy to get inside of you, and eventually that hypocrisy will spread and corrupt your entire being. You start wearing a mask at work. I'm telling you, you're gonna start wearing a mask at church. You're gonna start wearing a mask with your friends. You're gonna start wearing a mask with your family. Wherever you go, hypocrisy spreads inside of the person. But it's not only hypocrisy, the sin of leaven. Uh, Paul talks about this to the Corinthians. He tells the Corinthians, hey, be careful of leaven. Look what he says in Corinthians 5 and verse 6 and through 8. Your glorying is not good, Paul says. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? This pride that they had in Corinth was destroying themselves and destroying the entire church. So we see in the scripture that leaven or yeast represents sin. And so what Jesus says is that a little sin is going to spread and destroy you. And bold people don't let little sins stay. Do you know what we as Christians like to do? You, wanna, you know what the kingdom of God is truly? The kingdom of God truly is a bunch of Christians pointing their finger at the world's big sins while they cover up their own little sins. Jesus said, you want to know what the kingdom of God should be? We need to cut out these little sins. Look, look, look. As a friend, I'll pause here and just say it. That little bit of pride that you allow in your life, because that's just the way you are. You're just a, I'm just a proud, I just, I have some pride. Big deal. That little bit of pride that you allow into your heart, it will corrupt you, it will spread, and it will destroy you. Cut it out. That little bit of lust that you allow in your heart, that little bit of a click, that little bit of a linger, that little bit of greed 
that you allow in your heart, that covetous spirit that you say, I just, I just, I just, it really is a good thing. I just want more than everybody else. That little bit of greed that you allowed it, that little bit of wrath that you store up, that bitterness that's deep inside. And you're like, I have a right to feel this way. That little bit of bitterness, that little bit of rage that is inside. I'm telling you, it will spread like yeast, like a cancer. It'll destroy you and eventually puff you out of place to where it will ruin not only you, but the people around you. And what Jesus is saying is it takes boldness. It takes bravery and confidence and security to go after that sin and cut it out. And if you do, you are the better for it. So what Jesus is saying is be bold. And the bold never despise little beginnings because they have faith. Little beginnings can lead to great things. The bold never allow little sins. To, they boldly come in and cut it out of their own life. They don't spend their life pointing out the sins of others. They think in their own terms of what sins are still in my heart. And number three, we see the little seed and the little leaven. And now Jesus shows us the third little thing, the little gate which is my favorite of these three. Look at what he says in verse number 32. Number three, the bold won't wait at the little gate. I'm very proud of it because it rhymes. Say it with me. Won't wait at the little gate. Say it again. So awesome. Say it with me one more time. Won't wait at the little gate. This is a pastor with pride. You see it? I got to cut it out. Look at verse 22. So Jesus went through the cities and the villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Stop. Verse 22. It's what we call a hinge verse. And if you're really, so this is a parenthetical thought in the middle of my sermon about boldness. Verse 22 gives us indication that Jesus is taking a new journey. He's finishing his time in Galilee. He's finishing his time in Decapolis. And now he's transferring over to a land called the land of Perea. And he's gonna spend the next few months traveling through the villages of Perea before he crosses over the Jordan, goes to Jericho and goes up to Jerusalem to die upon the cross for our sins. This is about six to eight months before Jesus Christ dies upon the cross. And verse 22 is that hinge point. Now, he arrives in verse 23 and it says, the writer, and then one of the, followers of Jesus said to Jesus, Lord, I have a question. Are there only a few who will be saved? It's a good question. It's a question people have asked for many, many years. Religious people have wanted to know how many people will eventually be in heaven. In fact, there are religions and even denominations and cults who have tried to pinpoint this many people will eventually get to heaven. They try to pick out a number. And so there have been debates. How many people? Some people who don't like crowds are like, is it going to be overcrowded in heaven? You know what I mean? And so somebody asked Jesus, how many people will eventually be in the kingdom? You keep talking about the kingdom of God. How many people will get there? And Jesus does not answer the question directly. Instead, when they ask, how many people will go to heaven? Jesus says, are you sure you're going to make it? Look, that's exactly what he says. Jesus, how many people will make it into the kingdom of heaven? Jesus says, you better strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter, but they will not be able to. 
I'm not gonna tell you a number, but I'll tell you this. A lot of people are gonna try to get in the gate, but not everybody's gonna get through the gate. Only a few are gonna get through the little gate. Now, the little gate, we think like, what does that mean? And that's because you are Americans who live in Las Vegas 2,000 years after this. But every single person in the land of Perea would have known what this is like because they lived in the midst of Greek culture and the Roman Empire. They lived in a culture just like you live in an American culture. And what they would have known is the homes during the Pax Romana looked very similar to this diagram that we're about to look at. Do you see this diagram? You can see there are cut-throughs in the wall to show exactly what the house would have looked like. But this would have been a typical middle-class Roman or Greek-style home of the day of Jesus. Now, what you'll notice about the home itself is that it is inward-facing, not outward-facing. And on the outside of the home, there would have been a large 8 to 10-foot wall that would have surrounded the entirety of the property. A lot of places in the world actually still build their homes this way, where they'll build it without any windows, without any doors, and they'll only allow one specific gate to come into the compound where the different rooms are, and there's a courtyard right in the middle, one gate. And that gate would have been about the size of a normal man's shoulders so that one person could walk through that narrow gate at a time, no matter how many people were coming in. If you were wealthy and you had a bigger home, you would have guards at the gate, making sure only one person is coming through the gate at a time, so you're checking to see if they're allowed in. So when Jesus says, beware, because some of you may not even get in the gate, you better strive, which is an athletic term during this time, to get in the gate, because some of you are not even gonna get in the gate. Jesus is picturing heaven like a big party at a mansion. That's exactly what he's picturing it. In fact, look at what his verses go on to say. This is very relevant to you if you've ever wondered, am I gonna get into heaven? Are you gonna get into heaven? Look what he says in the next verse. He says, the master, once the master of the house was risen up and shut the door, you begin to stand outside and knock on the door. Now you've been invited to the party and you've came to the neighborhood of the party, but you did not go inside of the gate yet. And at some point, the master's gonna be like, okay, you know what? It's time to shut the gate. The party's ready to begin. But instead of getting into the party, you kind of lingered outside the party. You were visiting over at the store and you were visiting over at a friend's house and you were busy selling a field and you were busy attending a wedding. You were doing lots of other things. And the master shuts the gate and you're standing at the gate, knocking on the door. Hey, hey, I'm supposed to come to the party. I was invited to the party. Hey, somebody opened the gate. I was supposed to be in there. This is Jesus' analogy of what it's gonna be like at the end time. And so what does he say happens? Goes on, look at the next verse. Some of you will stand at the gate yelling, Lord, Lord, open the gate for us. And he will answer and say to you, "Um, I, I, I do not know you. Where are you from? And then you will say to Jesus at that time, we ate together and we drank together in your presence. We spent time. I remember you teaching in my city. I remember you teaching in my streets. But then the master of the house will say, I don't know you. 
I tell you, I don't even know who you are and I don't know where you're from. Depart from me, all of you workers of iniquity, and you'll be outside the gate. And then Jesus says, then there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You'll be grinding your teeth in frustration saying, what did I do, what did I do, what did I do? The party's going on without me, what did I do? Now I'm stuck out here and he told me I'm not allowed in. What do I do, what do I do? What did I do, what did I do? And then you'll see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of the prophets of the kingdom of God and yourselves have been kicked out. What Jesus was addressing here was the presumptuous nature of humans. Some of us just presume, of course I'll make it to heaven. Like, I mean, don't you know who I am? Like, I'm very religious. <laughs> Don't you know who my parents are? Don't you know what my nationality is? Don't you know what country I'm from? Don't you know how much wealth I have? And Jesus says to this predominantly Jewish community, he says, some of you think you're getting into the party because you're a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you're gonna be kicked out of the party because you think you deserve to be in it, yet you didn't line up to get in the gates. Now, let me just stop and make this clear for this crowd. If you think you're getting into heaven because you have some sort of a religious background, because some sort of a family pedigree, and you think you can just sit around the neighborhood of religion, you can sit around the neighborhood of the kingdom of God, you can kind of be adjacent to Jesus, and then in the last minute, jump in the party. Friend, you are, excuse me, a fool. And the reason is, is because the gate is wide open and Jesus is calling you saying, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And you're out calculating and idealizing and thinking through, maybe I will, maybe if it's a last minute choice, maybe I'll go through the gate. And one day the gate will shut and you'll be left out. And you'll be knocking and saying, I thought I was supposed to get in there. I remember I went to church. I remember I was Baptist. I remember I was a deacon. I thought, hey, 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 I'm supposed to be in there. And Jesus is going to say, here's the problem. I don't know you. I Notice his words. I don't know you. Your entrance into the party has nothing to do with your religion. It has everything to do with your relationship to Jesus Christ. You know what they say, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Some of you think the way to heaven is knowing more stuff. The way to heaven is knowing Jesus and him knowing you. So do you know him? Does he know you? Has he seen you sitting under the fig tree? Has he called you even in your skepticism and cynicism? And have you gotten on your knees and said, oh Jesus, you are the king of Israel. You are the Messiah. You are the son of God. I need to be saved. Have you done that? Because if you haven't, friend, you are playing a dangerous game. Now, some of you are like, well, if religious people don't get in, then the party's gonna be empty. And Jesus answers that in the next verse. Look at what he says. He says in the next verse, they will come from the east and the west and the north and the south and sit down in the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, don't worry, the party will fill up. I'm letting the Gentiles in. For the American church, they need to hear it this way. Don't worry, the party will be filled up. I'm letting the sinners in. 
Sinners who repent of their sin and receive Jesus go to heaven, not religious people who think they don't need to repent. So I don't know who you are today, but I feel like God's trying to wake, me, wake some of you up to say, whoa, 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 whoa. Maybe I've been around the party. Maybe I've been adjacent to Jesus, but I've never walked through the gate. I've never gone through the narrow, small door, the door that is Jesus Christ, the door that says he will open to you if you'll knock. And if you haven't, friend, what are you, what are you, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? And then Jesus says in the very last verse we'll study today, and indeed there are the last who will be first and there are the first who will be last. He's saying to the predominantly religious society, some of you think you're first at the gate, but you're not coming in because you didn't wanna come in. And there are people that was never even thinking about coming in and they're right in line. Maybe you're one of those today. Maybe you're one of those who've gotten in line and you're like, can I, can I go through the gate of Jesus and receive Jesus as my Savior? The answer is yes, yes, come on in. I'll never forget, like a couple weeks ago, I talked to a man, he said, can somebody like me get saved? He was so depressed about his own sin. Can somebody like me get saved? And I looked at him and I said, only people like you can get saved. If you've never been born again, you can be saved today but you have to boldly take it. You have to be bold. Yeah? This is your second chance. So I was upset. I sat there with my computer and my books. No ice cream. And I was thinking about, you know, how I bought them a house and they live in my home. You know what I mean? Dads, you know. <laughs> and you're like, they, they wouldn't even be alive if it weren't for me, you know? Because, you know, the whole beginning thing. And like, they, I, but whatever, you know, it's fine. They don't want to share with their dad. I get it. And I was, you know, a little pity party. And then all of a sudden, my, 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 my daughter, Savannah, she brought me out a little bowl of ice cream and a little bit of brownie and it was so sweet, she walked right over to me and she sat it down and she put it down in front of me and she said, there. <laughs> Just like that. <laughs> and I ate it up. If you want Christ, you need to go after Christ. Be bold. Like literally, after the sermon, some of us will, will all get up and leave. But there's a few, maybe, in this room who have never been born again. You don't know that you're saved. Genuinely, you're not even sure if you died, you would go to heaven. And you're like, I, I don't know. When everybody else leaves, it took boldness to walk in today. Why don't you be bold enough to come and talk to me and say, Josh, we need, we need to go talk. I want to be saved. I want Jesus. Amen? Okay, let's pray. Father? Thank you because you've taught us not only that you are bold, but that we can be bold too. I pray that we would be. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Are you going